0: This is Thomas DePaulo.
1: This is Max.
2: This is Kevin Hamm.
1: Hey, this is Jake Cook.
2: Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. Tonight on The Green Box, Kevin talks us through his vision of how to run a dynamic West Marches style campaign in the world of Delta Green. After that, we discuss how to think like a criminal which is exactly as much fun as it sounds like.
3: So, everybody, we, a lot of us, play games at the Night of the Opera, uh, kind of open table, Delta Green role-playing game world. Um, that's kind of an understatement. Many of us play and run games there, and Melonbread is the father, so to speak. But what, Danny Melonbread. Yeah. What There's
4: is a reason they call table? me the Baba Ganoosh. What's what's that reason? Uh, Translators note, um, Baba Ganoush means uh, indulged father or spoiled daddy. 100% accurate.
3: Yeah, I agree. So what is an open world, or or, sorry, what is an open table, I guess? Um, And then there's kind of two things that are going to be pretty closely just describable within that. One is the concept of a living world, living RPG world, and one is a West Marches-style campaign. So just wanted to chat about that a little bit. So for somebody who has never heard of us or what we do at night of the opera uh first
2: of all welcome to the
3: show yeah welcome to the show i I would start with episode one and i think i'd start with the Chris Gunning interview i would start with the chris gunning interview that was like our best that was one of our best episodes um anyway what let's tell these people what a living world is or what how it pertains at least to the night of the opera uh, discord
4: there's a reason i stopped calling it an uh open world and started calling it an open table uh so so why is that Concept of a living world or open table or West Marches is, is very similar. All of them refer to a concept where you have a shared game world where you have a rotating cast of GMs, no regular group of players that you just run games for whoever shows up. And the idea, if it's supposed to be a living world, is that all of this happens in a single persistent setting. And increasingly, what I've been finding is that's not been what happened, and so I've shifted away from calling Night of the Opera a living world and towards just calling it an open table because that removes the expectation of having to maintain strict continuity, having to coordinate extensively between the people running the game, etc. and so on, and having to deal with all the logistics that you get. I'll tell you guys, um, the big there, there's 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 uh, organized plays that that kind of comes come close to. What a living world is supposed to be like. So, in the case of um, of a uh, you know your your Pathfinder, you have Pathfinder Society, five you have Adventurers League. However, the clo- this the much closer analog would be something like uh, Runner Hub, which was a was still is a, a Shadowrun organized play that you can do on the internet. And uh, there was one for Eclipse Phase, which is what inspired me to do this one for Delta Green. Is gone now because of some stuff we'll talk about later.
3: So but- then, what makes like if if this is no longer or if Night at the Opera, rather, he's no longer a canonically living world, but more of an open table. What does what does strictly an open table mean? What's the concept
1: there?
4: Open table is is go ahead, Jake.
1: I was gonna say it's kind of like uh, when I first started running games on Night at the Opera. One of the first game or one of the first scenarios I was gonna do was Ladybug, Ladybug Fly Away Home from uh, Saji and Fox Scenario Collection. At the end of that one, if the players fuck up really badly. Well, uh, it can have like huge cataclysmic events for like the you, the world that's there, or like just picture any basic Call of Cthulhu scenario where uh, the great old ones rise and humanity's doomed or whatever. I'd say you could use that as a definition or the difference between an open world and a living world, because in the living world uh, you continue playing with that big cataclysmic event, whereas in the open world you guys kind of reset and be like, all right, let's just pretend that didn't happen.
4: I'd say it's, it's, are you going to take, an a- take notes in agonizing detail about what happens in each session to make sure that anyone who runs games after that is um, kept appraised to developments? It's, are you going to standardize on setting details and what's canon and what isn't? Are you going to enforce a strict timeline for things like uh, home scenes and characters recovering health, sanity, etc.?
1: All right, it's kind of keeping track of consequences, both uh, macro and micro.
4: I disagree. I think you can keep track of consequences without needing a uh, without needing a living world.
1: So,
3: I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to trying to get someone to say, but I'll just say it. Um, look, if you take away the living world concept and just talk like about an open table, uh, it's you know a community that anybody can run games in, anybody can play games in. There's less of a set. Literally isn't any set, one set narrative. Um, but there are at least in the cases of now, the opera that loosely connect your group of characters, so characters can jump around between handlers. But is the 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 juxtaposition is what everyone is pretty much used to. It's your standard every Tuesday night, you go to your buddy's house, you play in the basement, it's one GM, one set of players. So the open table opens that up to a allow for a lot more. And it's really I guess you could do it in real life, but it really thrives in an online setting where you can get a large number of people who are geographically separate to play games together.
2: You certainly can do it in a real-life setting. In fact, that's the format that pickup games that your friendly local gaming store tend to take.
3: Yeah, I think yeah. that's the exception, or that's the rule.
4: Well, yeah, but the but the the reason why it's it's a popular format to use on the internet is that it's not constrained by. Physical proximity to the store. You're absolutely right, though, because when I talk about um, something like Pathfinder Society or Adventures League, they're not necessarily open tables, but organized plays are the same way. Where the assumption is that if you show up with a suitable character that's built according to your specific rules, then you can play at that game. And so you've got your Pathfinder organized play, Pathfinder Society. You've got your Fifth Edition organized play, Adventures League. I believe there was one for uh of Cthulhu. Was there? It's like a time a time of for Harvest or something.
1: Oh, no, you're talking about the Cult of Chaos. Is that Organized Play?
4: If I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't have literally just asked you whether it was Organized Play or not, my dude. Let's take a look at the Chaosium Organized Play web page.
1: Googling it. A
4: time to harvest. Campaign unfolding over six months should be offered free to all members of the Cult of Chaos. Chaosium's Game Master Organized Play program. Looks like we are both right.
3: So, all right, if you have a living world, which is... Well, I guess the beginning of the spectrum is a game you play with the same group of people. But let's forget about that. So, uh, the one in the spectrum, you have a living world. or Sorry, you have an open table. Excuse me. In the middle, you're going to have a living world where you're taking the open table and you've added some canon. Maybe it's just a roster of players. Maybe it's a loose grouping of events. Or, you know, hey, at this open table, this living world, every, everything that we do is going to be about... Um, it's all going to be cowboy operations and it's all going to be about dismantling majestic and then 20 you know 10 different gms come in and run games about that kind of same basic idea and then on the far other side of the spectrum you have you have a west marches style campaign which is a lot more um there's more overhead more tracking of things um missions need to be kind of after action reported and tracked and things like recovery time or home scenes or equipment can matter that kind of thing I think to me that's like the spectrum.
1: Yeah, you're talking about Western marches with there being multiple GMs or handlers or uh, what have you, right?
3: Yeah, I don't know that. Well, you could do a West March with one GM, but you don't necessarily
1: need to. Yeah, because because when I did it, it was with one GM. So I, I guess it could go both ways there, but I I think I get your. That's just a it. it's just
4: a hex crawl if it isn't got multiple. You know, if it, if it's yeah, not an open know. table, it's just a hex crawl. You can do it with one GM. Okay. But the idea is that you need either the revolving players or the revolving handler.
1: Okay, good. I guess I'm playing the straight man here because I didn't know the difference between no, the like, two. No, like,
4: like, like, because honestly, you're gonna find people who use it your way. So it's not like our definition is um, the correct one necessarily. But in order to establish that taxonomy, I got gotcha. you.
3: And so the the thing about sorry, uh, I'll start that again. So yeah, the idea behind a West Marches system which is just kind of like a hex crawl but the key in the mind of the guy who invented it um is that there's no regular time so the players can the players kind of drive this drive the scheduling players get a, get a group of players get together figure out when they want to play and you know, hook up with the, with the gm there's no regular party so it's not like you're always going with the same people it's whoever is available at that time and there isn't really a regular plot and all that means is that the players get to decide and i'll use a dnd example you know that outside of town there's a cave and the last time a party went through there they heard noises from the cave and saw steam rising up there might be a dragon in there but that party was they already been beaten up for the day and they had a bunch of loot and they didn't want to risk it so they went home so then like the next week a party gets together and says you think there's a dragon in that cave let's go fuck it up so you get together tell the gm what you want to do he has time to prep it and then you go in there and try to fight the dragon so those are kind of the core concepts and that's where You know, Night of the Opera, generally speaking, the handler brings an adventure. Hey, we're going to run Operation Stormclaw Hufflepuff, and it's about this, who wants to come on board, and then you grab a group of players, and you play at a set time, and you play, and you do it. Rather than the players saying, hey, we want to investigate this cake that makes you eat people, and then a handler having to figure out what that is.
2: Cool. Kevin. Since this is a Delta Green podcast, Delta Green being an investigative RPG rather than a dungeon crawl, could you give us an example of what a West Marches style thing might look like in Delta Green?
3: Yeah. So let me lay out, uh, and please, a uh, huge caveat here. This is the Kevin idealized version. Um, it's not the end-all be-all. It's just how, if I had ultimate time and money and resources- The world according to Kevin. I, yeah, I would do it. Yeah. Um, so it's only gonna go in my head. So you find you take you take a group of handlers who are who want to be like the the seed handlers, and you you come up with a half dozen kind of s- subplot story seeds. You know, maybe you around one town. Oh, This is this is my thing. So you set it in one geographic area, so it allows you to have continuity between the the player, the area, and resources, and green boxes, and equipment. That way, you're not going from Budapest to Singapore to. Saskatchewan, every every two days. So you said it in like Massachusetts. So maybe in like Western Mass, you guys have said there's a cult and they're Yog Yogg Yeah, Close enough. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're harvesting organs. That's their their deal. Maybe in the city, you have two rival um, kind of mid level crime bosses who are both using the occult to get a little more power. And maybe you have like a, a Marsh Technologies lab that's kind of getting a little big for his britches. So you seed a few of these things around like a few just facts, facts of the world. Um, And then you bring in a bunch of players and they may all make characters and various, you know, maybe there's rules for that. Maybe there's, maybe there's restrictions like, hey, everybody's gonna start out not Delta Green. And then you have some intro games to get people into it and that can help you see the world as well. Um, Or everybody is Delta Green and they're kind of coming in to investigate. So you have, you essentially have the modern day equivalent of an old school tavern with an old school kind of job board. But, you know, Delta Green there's these kind of like watch list things. Hey, there's people disappearing in Western Mass. Hey, the crime war in Boston is heating up. You know, hey, this the technology coming out of this lab is a little too good to be true. Here's some seeds to investigate. So a group of players gets together and says, hey, my FBI guy and your ATF lady and your firefighter, we wanna we want to figure out what's going on with the disappearing people. So you tell the GM that. GM sets the game up. And you don't necessarily go find the cult and defeat him in the first day. That GM might say, All right, they get this first investigation. So let's have a couple, you know, families who've had disappearances and maybe a couple little little rabbit trail clues, breadcrumb clues. So they go out there, they have an adventure, they report back hey, we went to Western Mass. We interviewed some people, you know, one of them was really squirrely. We went on a wild goose chase, but that ended up being, you know, mundane. But we think we have a connection to the a Vietnamese cult or a Vietnamese, you know, uh, you know, family. And here's where we left off. And someone else can say, Well, that sounds good. Let's follow up on that Vietnamese family, or or let's forget it, let's go to the the crime thing, whatever. So that's kind of how it would play out. And then as as steeds get defeated, as you defeat the cult either you invent the new seed naturally because well you guys stopped the cult but the leader got away that's an obvious one or you just seed another thing into the world and you know, kind of keep going from there eventually you reach a critical mass where the players are like hey we really want to we have a bunch of you know atf agents who really want to do something with illegal firearms so we'll just we'll say that there's this weird supernatural firearm that somebody found out you know it's like a laser pistol somebody found and it happened to be real we want to investigate that and that's a player created seed that the gms could run with and Maybe it's Migo. I don't know.
2: It sounds like there's a natural hook in there with um staying on the case in the uh, the home scene. definitely.
4: This format of game that you've just described, Kevin, sounds like a format that basically you take all that shit in the, in the handler's book about how, you know, the agents don't know anything and they're pieces of garbage and they just get told to go places and the, the case officer never tells them anything. And they're never allowed to have any fun. They get all the toys taken away from them. the cannabis game arts technologies, you take all that shit and you throw it in the trash and you say, you are yeah. your own case officer. You have the, it's like an, it's an, it's basically like an XCOM. You, you have your, you have these resources, you have this, this many hot spots on the map, go, go, solve the case
3: yeah definitely and what what i like about it or what i like is that uh again let's say you go to western mass you investigate the cult and in doing so you totally go down the wrong trail you you, you get out it gets out of hand you end up like investigating this guy who's totally innocent but you kick down his door with, with a without a warrant and you end up shooting him and kill him, and it's like a huge deal well now somebody may want to try to like come back and either cover that up or like plant a firearm there maybe you couldn't do it at the time so now you have the seed floating out there. That's like fix this mess that got created. And if you don't, you know maybe what'll happen is you know someone will start investigating you guys to see what's going on. But if you can fix it, and maybe that happens in a whole separate scenario, maybe it's like a home scene, or maybe it's just a hey, we're before we get started, let's take 20 minutes and solve this little little thing we got to deal with. And you can kind of do that, or it's like hey, our green box, uh, we used up all the med supplies. We want to make sure that for the next firefight, we have you know quick clot and tourniquets. So let's make sure we. It's a bad example because those you just buy, but I make, sure we, make sure we get some more morphine. So on the way out to Western Mass, let's stop at a vet and like get some good drugs. And that can go hilariously off the rails sideways. Now you have
1: another. Uh, we entry. accidentally got horse tranquilizers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly.
4: I think that having a persistent uh, world is fine, having lots of continuity and so on. I also um, don't like it because not only is it a lot of infrastructural work, and if you don't, if you guys don't believe me, um, I know that you guys listen to me do, but if y'all listening to me in the audience, don't um, go look at the amount of infrastructure for something like runner hub, go look at like the elaborate set of nested wikis and and subreddits and the like elaborate multi-page guides and how to create a character. Not only that, but the other thing that, the other thing that that stops me from doing it is that a lot of the times persistent consequences end up meaning stuff like people are going to play less often like one thing i know that you suggested you wanted to do with um with your living world concept for delta green kevin is to um to have like persistent tracking of wound recovery because delta green has rules for like you you get hp back and you said you framed it as like oh wouldn't it be super cool if people had to like you know always like a risk to go out in an operation and I, i was thinking when i heard that so that means that you just won't play the game to keep your character alive i was like that sounds contra to what i enjoy about delta green or another example is that,
1: um that that sounds like, like like schrodinger's agent like your agent is alive because you're not playing them or something you know
3: i mean i was just implying that we would just use whatever the rules are for for wounds uh what's nice about that and again in in the, the canon of kevin's world is that there's a risk to the run and gun approach you can't just use guns to solve every problem or maybe you can but you might get hurt in that case so if you send all your best agents your best fire, shooters out to take down a bad guy and you get hurt in the process. And then a new bad guy shows up. Well, now you may have to send out your B team. Maybe your agent who is a librarian has to finally, finally suck it up and get out there and fight some stuff.
4: Didn't you so also if, want to limit the number of characters people could have though?
3: Yeah, but let you me know that would be only, that'd be like two or three. So you'd have a you'd have other characters, and that's just some, that that's just to make sure that people don't just roll up another. Well, my ATF agent is wounded. My ATF agent Billy is wounded. Here's an ATF agent named Fra- Frank who's not wounded. Like that would try to avoid that kind of thing. But having consequences, I think, makes it makes a risk versus reward kind of thing. And part of the investment someone would have in the the World* is like, yeah, you might have to make a bad decision, having have a character die, but that's part of the story.
4: Oh, uh, next point. Um, and this one, this one might be a more um rich uh, vein to tap for people who who want to talk about this stuff because it I think leads into another thing. Uh, when you take a like a uh approach of having multiple uh, GMS or multiple handlers. Existing in the same game world, the more continuity and uh, infrastructure that you want to enforce, the more that everyone has to agree on basic facts about the game world. And in a setting like Delta Green that is kind of built around um, mysteries and imaginations and so on, then uh, the problem becomes: All right, well, I have a certain philo- I have a certain way that I think deep ones should be. I have a certain. I have certain things about deep ones and about other setting elements that I think are interesting. I think that the way that they're presented in the books is stupid. I think the whole concept of greater Deep Ones and lesser Deep Ones and reproductive barbs fucking sucks, and I don't want to use it in my games, and I've come up with an alternate presentation of Deep Ones. And now if, if I have to agree with the rest of the people in the group about how Deep Ones work, we're in trouble, because now either I or someone else has to give up their concept in order to... Establish continuity in the game world.
2: May I offer a possible workaround for that? And you can you can tell me why this doesn't work. Uh, fuck you, it's the mythos. It doesn't have to make sense. roll sanity. <laughs> that's That's one option.
4: I agree. Um, However, if that's the road we're going down, then the entire concept of having continuity at all feels almost fatuous.
2: That's a good point, yeah. If nothing is consistent between handlers or even between scenarios, then one will eventually ask what is the point of investigating anything
3: that's a that's a good example melon because i also agree with you on deep ones um so part of it is just you know you you have a you have a place where all the handlers all the regular kind of world builders can get together and one you can just kind of agree on things like hey this makes more sense is that cool yeah i like it so that's fine um and you know if someone really has a problem with it you can find a workaround like maybe that some deep ones evolved this way and some didn't or maybe you call your thing something else or hey let's use them one way a deeper once one they, once they've defeated that and we have like a soft reset or something we can do it the other way generally at least i've played in a bunch of these and those kind of things are usually more of like a creative fun problem solving like oh what about combine the two or we do this or we make this change Rather than like, a, it's my way, or the highway, and I'll ruin everything. Because everybody's trying to collaborate, so it's in my experience, which is only anecdotal, it's less of a problem than I think it could. It is on paper.
4: So. um I think that you're right that you can work around it. However, I, I have another area that re- of standardization that can cause problems and that's um, house rules. I'll give you an example right now, right in, right now at this very second, some people in our discord are debating whether or not a character should be allowed to make a con save to see if they recover from uh, fatal injuries. And so, rules as written in the book is that it's completely up to the handler whether that's possible or not. Whereas I, when I run the game, have always said it's only if you're at exactly zero HP. But people, because a lot of people on the Discord are, are playing the game for the first time there, or because they 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 run or they play a lot of games with me because I'm the one who runs games most there, um, I think a lot of people kind of think that that's thought that that was actually the rule that you can only do it at zero HP. But 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 when it's your character's life and death, you really wanna know going into a game session which the rule actually is.
3: Yeah, you that's true. You do really want to know when your character is about to die in a melon bread game. It's important.
4: Yeah, the answer is this is war, survival is your responsibility.
3: So that's another perfect example. You start with no house rules or the ones that everybody already uses. Um, and then as things come up, you make a ruling in the field. And if it becomes, an, you know, if it makes sense, you add it to the, the slowly growing kind of overall document,
1: Establishing it house rule precedent. It. Yeah.
4: Well, yeah, that's the problem is that if you have jurisprudence and either the jurisprudence doesn't stick around, in which case it's arbitrary or it sticks around, in which case now as a game op- as a game officer, I've not only got to master the rules in the book, I've also got to master all this case law. That's the problem with, and that's that's not just a problem with open tables. That can be a problem with home games, too, where people want to have the rules be simple and come up with, you know, the specific cases by applying general rules. But the problem becomes that then people aren't always 100% sure of what their character is capable of or how the game world works. And so that's why I have a lot of sympathy for games like Pathfinder and Eclipse Phase that go too far in the other direction by... Um, establishing rigid codified rules for everything. It's so that people can actually have a good idea of what's happening around them, even if the only way to do that is to read a giant book with lots of special exceptions in it. And that's what we've tried to avoid at Night at the Opera by taking a kind of a looser, more improvisational tone, where the basic assumption is that um, when you go into a handler's game, you are living in their world and you can suggest to them how the game world works, but ultimately they're the higher authority.
3: I'll give you an example. So one of the last, you know, the big living world West Marchie systems games I played with was a, a Star Wars one, which uh, was a lot of fun, uh, the fantasy Flight Star Wars. Um, and then that, as you know, there's a little more, there's less hard rules on some things and some more kind of up to interpretation. interpretation you know, the players get to decide some things and then the GMs decide some things and a little bit of interpretation. And on the rare occasion where, where someone would make where someone would roll you know, three advantage, you want to do something, uh, you know, and they'd be like, well, the rules say this. And i am like, well, that's fine. But I'm used to, you know, the way I like to do things is if rule of cool, rule of cool is a thing. And if you have a really awesome idea, I'm not going to beat you over the head with it. If we can make it work, we'll come up with a collaborative solution. So if you run into like a house rule issue where maybe one GM, you know, if you roll an extra advantage and you have to four advantages, you want to counter to something different. And one GM doesn't, it's, you know, you try it. And you say, well, this is what I'm used to do. You kind of come to, a, come, to a, come to a solution at the, in the time, like, you know, together, and you move forward. And if it, becomes, if it comes up in, you know, every single game, then you put it into the rules document. If it comes up once every 10 games, then you move on. And when it comes to something like con saves, you know, in Delta Green, generally you probably just have the flavor of, you know, uh, lean towards the player. And after the fact, figure out how big a deal it is. And that seems like a pretty minor deal.
4: So it seems like we've transferred away from, here's the hypothetical ideal case of of a living world and more towards talking about our actual experiences with running games at a delta green open table and some of the benefits of that and some of the problems we have encountered and how we deal with those
3: yeah so i mean you've run the most games so what are some of the issues that come up
4: um i was gonna let someone else talk
0: but if you're putting me on the spot Or,
3: or someone else yeah i mean
0: something i've noticed the more i play at an open table is that Uh, It's made me appreciate the value of a session zero where everybody creates characters together, because if you don't do that, you're going to get everybody stepping on each other's toes. In the example of Delta green, you're going to get a lot of guys who play federal agents and special operators because they want to play people who are more likely to survive and boss their way around the scenario. And so you're not going to have as many people with specialized knowledge skills and so it's really difficult to write in clues for scenarios when you know that your regular stable of players aren't going to find them. And it becomes this vicious cycle where because you're not writing the clues, people don't have an incentive to take those character types anyway. And because no one has the character types, you have further incentive not to write the clues and so on.
4: And is that something that you've actually observed with the, uh, with the scenarios that we, we we write and play? I think um once start-
0: in a while. Yeah. Like, once in a while, I have something special for like anthropology or history and a cult and everybody put all their points and guns. So that goes over their head.
4: Yeah, I've had that. I've also had the reverse where um, I get the table where nobody has a badge. And then the scenario kind of depends on me <laughs> coming up with an excuse for why they access like 90% of the content. And when I hear about this problem, it puts me in mind actually of, I mentioned Pathfinder Society earlier. Um, I don't like Pathfinder as a game, but I like Pathfinder Society. I like the modules. And the reason I like them is that they actually go very far out of their way to provide um, a role for a wide variety of types of characters. And because it's Pathfinder, a lot of the times that comes down to just if you have a guy with fucking 30 diplomacy, so you get this. So it's not all perfect, but... There's stuff for people with skills. There's stuff for people with stealth and trap finding. There's stuff for people who are good outdoorsmen. There's stuff for people who are good at uh, discussions. There's stuff for people who have specific spell knowledge or specific spells. Uh, people different alignments and factions. That Those scenarios are supposed to be very robust in that they can be completed by just bulldozing your way through with violence, which is how you do it, anyways, most of the time. But there's there's also like cutouts or things that get easier if you have the right um, the right skills brought to the table. And so I think that's a good lesson. Um, but yeah, the negative is absolutely that people want to people want to be able to to be self sufficient, and so they can't count on someone defending them defending them. So they want to defend themselves. On the other hand, it can encourage me as a handler to make a scenario that can be completed by a wide variety of character types.
3: And that ties into uh, another potential positive for a more formalized, um, you know, West March's open table style, because you might have a, you might know that your gun guys might come across a big bad they have to deal with and have to retreat. Well, then the next step might be to go figure out how to defeat it. So that's when you m- make sure that you're bringing in your, you know, your, your researchers and your apologists, but because you had to retreat, maybe they, the bad guys followed you. So you still need guys to protect them. So you have to kind of pick your team. All right, we know we want to bring a guy with computer use and a guy with you know library use or the equivalent. Um, and but if we bring all these guys, and we won't have the guns. So you got to kind of play it from both angles, and it can be kind of fun to put that team together for that kind of specialized mission. But it only works if you have a much if you have a more more overhead.
2: I've had some experience with other living world projects, more in the vein of the Shadowrun one than than the the West marshes one. It's been my experience that. Um, the kinds of people who are into doing the administrative side of things, the bookkeeping side of things, the the actual running of it and the main into of the infrastructure are not always the same kinds of people who are interested in being GMs and running games and contributing to the world that way. So you almost kind of need two um, separate cores of users to get that kind of thing running.
3: That's a valid, uh, valid point. One thing you can do... I'll speak generally. Is you can give players a reason to have a hand in it, um, and we've talked about this in in other episodes, I'm sure. But you know, we talked about it in how to engage players, I believe. But make one player the scribe, and if they're the scribe, they they write up the after action report, and if they do that, they get an extra one sanity, or they get an extra you know five, two skill points. You know, we'll figure figure out what an appropriate mechanism might be. Yeah, um, but who tracks that though? I mean, the scribe.
2: The scribe does. Yeah. Well, okay. If the scribe tracks that. Well, then that's that's the that's the Joseph Stalin problem.
3: <laughs> it's not. So I mean, we're, we're, it's not. It's not a problem. That's how,
2: that's how Stalin got into power. Is he was the guy taking notes at all the meetings, and then he would add. I, I oh yeah, my Secretary Corps is is exempt from the draft. I
3: mean, fair, but that just doesn't happen. <laughs> because there's, it's
4: because It's funny. Stalin, the executioner, alone remains. I was thinking less along the lines of um, like why we're not this type of living world, and more like problems we've actually come into uh, running it. Like um, so, since since um, since I've since I've you know, like you said, I've run some some games there. Uh, the big downside of this is that you cannot enforce consequences. until or you, you basically basically everything has to be done in one session you cannot enforce consequences that happen after the fact so anything that takes more than one session is essentially not a problem for the characters they basically become free of you once they leave your clutches and you can't get them back and there's ways around it but it means that either you have to come up with a believable way to enforce that type of repercussion in a single session or you have to let them off the hook so you need to either come up with a way to make you know a prosecution or a counterattack believably happen in a single game because you might be able you might be running a second session of that game based on the first one you know based on the outcome but you can't guarantee that that player will still be there and so that leads to people running different types of scenarios. Essentially, every scenario that you run at an open table is going to be a a little bit like a convention game because there is no guarantee that you will ever see anyone at the table again. So you need to make sure that you've wrapped up the experience to some degree within the allotted time for one session. And that can be very powerful because it means that you have a gun to your head and the man with the gun tells you, uh, all right, friend, here's what you're going to do. You've got four hours. Make those four hours good enough that the people want to come back and play again. The downside is that if you have anything that takes longer than four hours, you have to chop it up into bite-sized pieces and then ensure that none of those pieces require that any of the people from the previous sessions be there.
3: Yeah, I was going to say that's one of the issues is everything becomes kind of a one-shot uh, unless you specifically try to schedule out. Like, all right, it's going to be three Saturdays in a row. It's all going to be connected. And if that happens, those characters are like locked into it. They can't go do anything else i guess i could but it'd be weird so that is one of the 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 issues with the open table style of kind of less less set uh, players and less set characters and stuff um and i'm not sure there's a way around it aside from putting a lot more structure on top of it. i think it's just the price we pay for having delta green games several times a week
4: yeah so um for those of you who are wondering why the hell did you do this melon bread um i'm looking at my uh Arnett of the Opera calendar on our subreddit. And we have literally a game every day this week from from um, Tuesday until Saturday.
3: So I have another complaint. In fact, with an open table, living world style, open table style, um, players like to wait until right at the last minute to sign up. But I need some time as a handler to prep for what's happening. And if I, if I look, if it's like six hours before a game look and looking at one person signed up or two people, I might cancel it and then people show up with two hours later oh, i want to play or it's if you had a set if you came at it from either the way of a well you only have same five people every week and then you know what's happening or if you went to the traditional like west marches style where four players get together pick a time and then find a gm then you've already got four people signed up and you might lose one that's the way it is but you'd have a kind of have a quorum to start with and that is a frustrating thing with open tables.
1: I think that
4: you are the way, so Kevin, the way that you do it is is, you're like, if they, if they if I don't have X signups by this time, then then we're not doing it. And I think that if everyone did it your way, we'd be more punctual. But I think that the fact that just you do it means that you just have to cancel the games. Because you because you alone aren't enough to kick people's asses and make them be punctual. If I did it and if everyone else did it, then we'd probably be, be doing better. But we'd still have to cancel games sometimes because we couldn't get people until the last minute. Um,
3: it's, it's also it's a factor of I do a lot of last minute prep so it's like well if nobody wants to play this, if nobody else is ready to play this game I'm not going to spend the time prepping it I'll just reschedule it uh, and that gets kicked down the road forever if, if people keep last minute signing up but I'm with you maybe we should just kick people's ass more
4: well no I think that I'm fine with the way it, it goes because I've kind of accepted so one, one of the problems and um, Tom this will go into a point that you made before we started the, the recording I think um, that uh, when you do this type of game, you cannot dig as deeply into the specific characteristics of the player characters as you could at a home game with people who you knew were going to be there. I've basically given up on um, managing players disorders and making sure that everyone's kind of activating and reacting appropriately because the way the because I have a revolving door of characters and I don't know until the last second who's going to be at the table. And so I can do a quick overview and maybe pick out one or two things that are going to be relevant for the game session. Like if a guy specifically has a phobia that would that would be activated by the presence of a monster. I had a really fun time the other day with um, uh, some characters accidentally opened up a portal full of psychosensitive matter that would become whatever they thought about. And one of them had an addiction to... Um, or one, one of them had like been struck by tragic ennui because he wanted to go back to um, the lost city of Yithil. So it transformed the entire landscape around him into a, a, a misty gray city street with amber rooftops and stuff like that. And so you can occasionally get really good moments together, especially if the players are doing their due diligence because he was the one who reminded me of that and that was really helpful. But it can be very difficult to make the players' backstories and so on come alive. If you weren't there for why they had amnesia, or you weren't there for when they got a magic item, or a spell, or whatever, or, you know, what was their relationship with their bonds.
3: That's uh, another really good... Uh, I'm trying not to beat this point up too much, but that's another v- value to the system where the players bring the GMs a game. As you know, far enough in advance, you can review a buddy sheet and kind of know what's going on. But I'm with you. I don't have a chance to track players stuff because usually it's last minute or there's too many players that are recognized. We we then. have we
4: have people on our on our Discord who who are very aggressive about asking people details about their characters beforehand. It's a very different type of experience to have um one of those people and it um it essentially do you want to go that extra it, it it's part partly it's extra effort and then partly it's um like you said, having people, having people, having everything planned up beforehand and not being last second.
1: It seems like you could kind of utilize some of the things we talked about in playing to lift in that, or playing to fail, I guess, if you're talking about disorders.
4: Yep. That's one of the things that we talked about in that episode was, um, that the simplest way you could do it is just to write what your character's disorder was on the placard, in addition to the characteristics that you wanted to emphasize. I think that was Tom's idea.
3: And online, you could also just go on the run before you start. When you do the character intro, just be like, all right, if you, you know, give me one thing you want people to lift and one thing you want me to, you know, beat up on that might, might work. I might try that in my next game.
2: Yeah, I might try that too. I,
3: I think we've been not a lot, not too negative, but somewhat negative. I do want to say that since joining that of the opera, I have played a lot more Delta green. I've written a lot more Delta green and nobody comment on finished scenarios or I'll stab you. Um, comment
4: on finished scenarios. How could we? There aren't any.
3: Uh there it is. Um, so it's, I mean, for all the gripping I do about having to cancel games or not getting enough characterization, uh, it's been I've got to play and run a lot more Delta Green, and that's been a lot of good, a lot of good times.
4: Yeah, I like playing uh, Delta Green, and I like running it even more, and I like having um, knowing that I can basically schedule for something for whenever it's convenient for me and um, get people to play it. By the way, um,
1: all these people show up to lick your
4: boots. Well, maybe, but here's the thing. Or hey,
3: he's not a cop.
4: I have to <laughs> freaking defend myself from five lunatics every time who are all vying for my attention. And uh, here's the thing, though: um, we've been talking a lot about open tables. Um, we haven't talked about setting them up, and the reason I haven't brought that up is that it's its own episode. But also because um, Alexandria did a really good um, section on how to bring your open table, how to how to create an open table, like how to how to schedule one and have people show up to it. And I think that segment is probably um, the that's 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 what you need not um, not anything we're going to tell you because I think because I think he pretty much nailed it.
3: I think people see all of the overhead of like a, a a living world that's been going for two years and it looks like a lot, but they all start pretty simple and then things get added. Is you know a good example for our thing is we have a and out of the opera have a list of scenario uh, ran ran games and for a while. It was updated kind of sporadically. And then a player who was like, oh, this is fun. I care about this. Updated it more and more. and Now it's pretty much, I think it's 100% now. So players will start picking out little things they want to keep track of and little bits that excite them. And then everybody has a feel like they're building this this collaborative effort. It doesn't fall upon one Excel sheet wizard to do all of the housekeeping.
2: The successful living worlds start small. Some people look at established living worlds with all the infrastructure and complex rules documents and go, okay, that's how we have to start one, and then try and build it from the top down and it falls apart.
3: Yeah, for sure. Every, every living world's going to be different. Everything needs to be built from a place of love. And plus, you can you can always scale up and add more stuff to it, but it becomes very hard to take pieces away. Uh Especially if you realize that they suck, but you built everything onto them, then you're stuck with them. That can be the death knell for a uh, for a living world.
4: One thing about running a living world game is that you need to be ready to. Um, you you need you need to be be willing to to work with people and moderate some of your instincts. Like if you if you if you're if, if everyone else living world runs a certain type of game and you run a very different type of game, that's fine. But there's certain things that can be disruptive. Like if you were to give out. Um, A spell or an item or whatever, or give somebody a condition that radically changes the way that they play the game, then that's something that's going to persist in the game world for until that character dies, basically, or is retired. And yeah, you can, you know, you as the handler, you have the authority to like veto stuff. Like, if I don't want someone who's got, you know, summon Azathoth to be in the game because they're just going to fucking summon Azathoth instead of playing the scenario, then uh, yeah, that's a problem. But just in general, I have to think sometimes you know, is this going to be, I don't want to say unbalancing, because I don't think balance is the right way to think about it, but um, is this going to be a uh, something that, that's that's going to go from, like, a fun and unique challenge to a serious hassle for someone down the line?
3: Yeah, and that's just part of the collaborative role-building effort. And if something gets too crazy, you know, if you uh, I'll, I'll pick on you uh, briefly, You're, one of your characters has an axe, um that probably in, in a more realistic world would have some sort of a sanity cost associated with it but it doesn't I'm sorry,
4: a more re- a more realistic world yeah a, mo- a, a more, more realistic world, world
3: with your axe that cuts through axe, everything in my in my in,
4: in real life if i had an axe that cut through anything and everything i wouldn't lose sanity i'd be fucking ecstatic
3: so as an example um you know if after a time you people might realize that that's a little overpowered and you just you just kind of hey that was uh that was awesome it's a cool item but we realize that we you Yeah, know, shouldn't have bow- should have balanced it better. So we're gonna change it. And everybody goes, okay, cool.
4: Oh, here, here's one. Here's one that I had. I had a character who, um, his like par- as part of his arc, he like learned about March technologies and Majestic Twelve and all that stuff. But then um, that essentially made him unusable in scenarios after that because anytime Delta Green would be like, um, you know, okay, you can't investigate March technologies or this is a March technology laboratory, he'd be like, shit. Okay, I throw a grenade. And so it was a guy who was essentially speed running the whole find out that March Technologies is evil thing because he'd already done it. So he was just too disruptive and I had to retire him because otherwise he was just going to walk in there and roll firearms and everything.
3: See, that's a cool example of in, sorry, that's that's actually a pretty cool example of somebody who like knows things and might become a liability that, that there, there needs to be a hook later on. That's like, all right, this guy's firebombing March Technologies buildings and it's way too high profile. So we either got to talk him off the ledge or, or retire him put him down um, and that could be a whole you know couple scenario hooks to like chase this guy out of the woods and get shot as he shoots you from a motel balcony etc cetera, etc cetera. so i would encourage our listeners um if they if they have a if their biggest problem with delta green is that there aren't enough games for them to play in one comes in out of the opera but if you want to play in 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 person uh Go to your friendly local game store because, like, you're you're not really—it's unlikely you're gonna grab enough people to play at your house. So, find your local game store. Start running one-shots and getting different people into some Delta. Sorry, start running some one-shots at your local store. Start getting people to know what Delta Green is. And once you've run the game for 20 people total, the ones who seemed interested, like, hey, what do you think about having this kind of informal, you know, uh, kind of we'll put together, or run some longer scenario stuff like that. And then maybe you'll develop a whole awesome, super living world with the rich lore and stuff. Or maybe you'll just have a place in your store that you can play Delta Green whenever you want. Either way, it's a win.
2: I've told you guys my joke, right? That it's not a Delta Green operation until someone commits a felony? Isn't that every
3: Delta Green operation?
2: That's That's the joke,
3: yeah. There was a great bit in a game I played the other day where we were interrogating some people under the guise of FBI, and I was bending the rules. The person lawyered up, and I kept asking him questions, and one of the other characters was like, you can't do that. And I was like, I don't give a fuck if this is invisible.
2: <laughs> I'm not a cop. Get out of here. It's often necessary in the course of a Delta Green investigation to take actions that are, to put it mildly, somewhat outside the law. And players know this, and players often play into this but i have often seen for instance players who are stumped by a locked door because they lack the skill of lock picking and that confuses and frustrates me as a handler when i design scenarios because i'm like guys this isn't skyrim so i thought it beneficial to talk about uh how to think like criminals
3: i mean i guess are we gonna try to draw a distinction between i mean like let will say that a locked door just boot the door down like you don't care But yeah. Uh, there are some kind of clever ways to think like criminals. Uh, I mean, I'll probably lean heavily on movies. I guess we're lucky Jake's not here. He'd have nothing to contribute to that conversation. But uh, uh, I guess I, I'm we assuming that we're trying to talk more about clever ways to do that rather than just big, dumb, idiot criminal ways or do or we want to go both down both roads?
2: I think clever is usually better, but that's a play style thing.
3: Like I really like in the movie Inside Man where they rob a bank and, spoilers I guess, in the course of the bank robbery... They wall one of the criminals up inside the bank, and the other then the other guys leave. Um, the other guys make an escape. So, like, d- days later, he walks out, makes a theft, and walks away. And I thought it was a pretty clever little twist. Well, that's the kind of criminal thinking that I find intriguing.
2: Wait, he gets out being walled in?
3: Hey, he's wearing a suit. And so, you know, days later, after the heist is all over... For the love and- of
2: God, Montresor.
3: Oh, my God. <laughs> Meming like criminals.
4: How about this? I'm I'm playing Delta Green. I want to make a character who's a criminal, but um, I don't want to just make a character who's like, you know, a hitman or something, because that's just like being a federal agent without a badge. So instead, I want to make a character who's good at, like, uh, disguising himself or at learning many secrets or at getting information through unconventional avenues or other things. What do I do?
3: I say take a high disguise, but I've almost never seen that be worth anything in a double green game.
4: No, you're completely right. The one character I rolled who had a high disguise um, kept getting thrown into scenarios where everyone just wanted to shoot him.
3: (laughs) Oh, that's not your
2: character's fault. Yeah,
4: that's that's not a character problem. I mean, it is, because if I had a character who was better at shooting, it would have lasted longer.
2: What I'm saying is the problem there is not that your character isn't good at doing things, the problem is that it's a scenario where none of those things are relevant.
0: One combination of skills could be. Uh craft locksmith and demolitions, and then you're essentially like a safe cracker. There's nowhere you can't get into either you pick the lock or you just take some thermite and burn through the lock.
4: You know what I think that that's good that's I like that that's a good start. You know what's even more deadly though is uh demolitions and drive because explosives and vehicle ramming are the two most dangerous things in Delta green. <laughs> You get me behind a wheel of the car, there's nothing I can't crash into. No pedestrian I can't take down.
3: How many of your characters have died via explosions in vehicles? Well,
0: um, in fairness, criminal criminal starts with drive, so you don't need right, to- so it's Right, so you can have both. You can have
4: lockpick and... So you can use lockpick to steal the car and then use drive to drive it into somebody.
2: I think you can pick the lock of a car ignition. I think you need electrician for that.
4: Um, It depends on what kind of vehicle it is, because when I was a little kid, my dad's car used to get boosted with uh, just a screwdriver.
2: I think any car made in the last, like, 20 years is going to have a key fob.
4: Yeah. So just get keys from other cars until you find randomly the one that works. Yes. That's usually how it works. Um, I have a question uh, that I think I could get you guys' opinion on, because I've wondered about it both as a handler and as a player. Um, we're talking about locked doors, and obviously there's lots of solutions to locked doors. You know, you can just, like, get a screwdriver, and you get a crowbar. Oftentimes, just take the uh, the lock off, and then put it back on when you're done. Smash crowbar a window. You, well, I'm I'm trying to think of like solutions that don't leave a lot of whole forensic evidence in a similar way. But how about this? Um, I got a snap gun. What does that allow me to do?
3: You mean like a, like a pipe with a goes like, like a zip gun, like a one shot?
4: No, like a lockpick gun. A, a lockpick gun, gun is okay. Yeah, a snap gun is is a, a lockpick gun. A zip gun is something more like uh, yeah, it's different. So I've got a snap gun. What can I do with it?
2: You probably the open most basic tumbler locks, so like houses. That's what the the book says. Yeah,
3: I think there are pretty reasonable expense too.
2: Yeah, basic tumbler locks would be things like like residential doors. Apartment complexes tend to have more complex locks on the front doors, but like the unit doors are just regular basic tumblers.
3: Yeah, but you can social engineer your way through a, a exterior apartment door almost any time. Yes, you
2: can. You hit all the buzzers and say pizza until someone lets you in. Yeah, it's exactly. Or I mean, how?
3: Uh, I may or may not have ever done it. You just hit a buzzer and you're like, "Oh, I, lo- I locked myself out. It's cold." So like, hey, yeah, here you go. Come on, come on in, buddy. Like, no, nobody fucking knows okay?
4: Yeah, or just say that you're like trying to deliver a package, but the guy you needed to, to give it to isn't home, so you can, you want to leave it in front of his door instead of uh, on the porch, which is gonna get fucking stolen. I've, I've I've let people inside the building uh, where my my old place to um to drop shit off on the in the inside hallway. Here's one um what level of um, abstract usage of your character's skills is appropriate in place of actual knowledge of being a criminal? Like, if I'm wanna, if i playing Delta Green and I want my character to score some coke, and I've got criminology of 60 and pharmacy of 40 or 50 or whatever, uh, do I actually have to narrate how my character approaches this procedure? Because if I do, I'm probably going to fuck it up or fail because I don't actually know how to do that. I mean, I sort of do here. You go to that fucking horrible jack-in-the-box. People are always getting stabbed uh, across the street from the biscuit store in the 24-7 Mexican restaurant. But uh, I don't know how to do it in the world of Delta Green. I'd probably fail and get caught or just get, like, a bag of baking soda or something. So is it a legitimate use of my character to just say, hey, I'm a criminal, a criminal. Do I know how to acquire illicit substances on these here streets? and then just have me be 60% good at doing that. Probably, yeah. Okay.
0: I would say, yeah, with those skills, you could do it. Uh, I would probably say it takes you a couple hours, and so just assume you're doing the rest of the day making that connection and flash forward to you getting it.
4: I also have a question about... Um, one thing that happens a lot is I'll be running the game. People will say, I will pick the lock, and I'll say, okay, what's your you know craft locksmith? Um, and they'll be like, oh, I'm just going to use criminology. Uh, what does the, criminology, does the criminology skill, does it entitle you to hotwire vehicles? Does it entitle you to pick locks? Um, can you use it for pickpocketing, or is that stealth?
3: Oh, I mean, I, I kind of hate the the craft lock pick, or craft lock because I can pick a decent lock, but I could not craft a lock in any way, shape, or form. Even if you gave me all the pieces, it would be hard for me to put it back together. So I feel like well, it's a... Kevin, some-
4: Kevin that's, that's part of skills in Delta Green... Being symmetrical, it's like how you use art—you use art forgery to forge documents and to detect forgeries, or how you use criminology to detect criminals and to be a criminal.
0: Well, there's a special training off decks that lets you lockpick, and in need to know, the federal agent starts with that. The federal agent starts with a special training to just let him pick locks. Yeah, in need to know. Yeah, the the federal agent pregen.
2: I also, I mean,
3: because lockpick guns are so simple to purchase. And granted, there is an enchan- enhanced risk skill like being caught with one, uh, but I would rather spend those skills on things I can't just
2: buy in the game. I mean, for a Delta Green agent, is that really a problem? Why do you have this lockpick gun? Because I'm a federal agent. Why are you searching me?
4: Perhaps. So I had a I had a scenario about um, that I wrote because, first of all, it was a meme, but second of all, I thought it would be funny to have an entire Delta Green working group that was all criminals, because criminal is one of the most versatile professions in the game. The scenario is called uh, Caged Heat as a reference to some meme movie from like the 60s or 70s. And it's about um, being prisoners who get uh, hired by Delta Green to stop a dangerous sorcerer from escaping prison. You stop the witch from escaping prison in exchange for your freedom. And then after you get out, the idea is – you're probably not going to use those characters again because it sounds like this. It's like a scenario that you would run as a kind of a a goof or like a one-shot. But – if you do want to play with those characters, you have a Delta Green cell that's all the criminal profession. But the criminal profession is one of the most versatile ones in the game because the good Delta Green professions, the ones that I like to play as, and this is – um you know, go maybe going at the character organization, are the ones where they have a really strong, solid base of skills that cover lots of situations, and then you can use your bonus points to specialize. And that's what the criminal class is in Delta Green. It gives you a very good foundation. You can shoot guns, you can fight hand to hand, you can talk to people, you can um sneak around. It has all the skills that you need, and then you can spend the rest of your points on stuff that you want and that's why i like the criminal class and that's why i like playing as a criminal in this game but one thing that i find interesting is uh i remember some some there was some like post that i read making fun of catalyst game labs for fucking stealing all of their freelancers money and the joke was that it was a post about what it's like to be a criminal because it was a post about Shadowrun which is a game that catalyst labs uh published and the post was talking about here's what it's like to be a criminal Cr- uh, habitual criminals have a much larger um, personal space area. like they feel much more uncomfortable when people get close to them at much at much greater distances than a normal person does because they're used to normal to people being close to them for unsavory reasons. Basically, it was, it was suggesting that these types of people have um, various uh, dark triad traits in, in certain amounts or acquire them as part of life in the underworld. And when I was reading that, I didn't think about it, but now that i think about it now, I'm thinking that doesn't really set apart the criminal pr- profession from any other Delta Green agent, because those are also people who are going to develop sociopathic behaviors in order to survive.
3: Yeah, I can see that. I do like the criminal as a as a profession, um, but I also think there's some value in, if you're not a criminal, I guess let's go back to the locked door uh, we started this discussion with, and let's say you don't just want to break in and uh, leave under forensic evidence. Um, you know, one th- one trope for movies is to disguise yourself as a you know, delivery man, uh, exterminator. You know, whether whether you create that need yourself by like you know let a bunch of cockroaches out, and then you know when the guy calls the exterminator, just just jump on and you know show up and get inside that way, or whether you talk your way in, like as an apartment apartment building, talk your way in, you know, talking to the super or whatever. Uh, as one way you could kind of get around a locked door. I found, I used to do a lot of photography and kind of urban exploration and that kind of stuff back in my youth, and I don't think I ever got stopped. I got stopped a bunch of times as doing urban exploration stuff, but once I started wearing a hard hat or a reflective vest and a clipboard, uh, it actually, there was actually a few times where the cops would like open doors or offer to stick around and like help out, because you just look official. Yeah, I'm taking photos for the developer. Oh, yeah, no problem. You need me to open this? Yeah, do you mind?
2: There you are. You're in. I've heard people say that, but it's nice to have that confirmed, that you can basically just go anywhere with a clipboard and a hard hat.
3: Well, I mean, think about whatever job you might have. If somebody walked up to you and they were already past the say any kind of access control point, um, and also assume you don't have like a strict, like in a top-secret installation where you have a strict access control policy... And they have a clipboard and a hard hat and they're like, oh, I'm checking on the machines. Mind if I uh, just take a look here? If you're like a minimum wage slave, how much should you? How much of a shit are you going to give? Like, yeah, go ahead, buddy. Is that one I can sh- shut down for five minutes? Great. I'll have a smoke. This is awesome. You know what I mean? Like, no, oh, nobody cares.
0: There's another solution to the locked door problem, which is both really brute forcing it, but also so unorthodox and unexpected that, well... Let me just explain it to you. Uh, There's an excerpt from a book called A Burglar's Guide to the City that describes how there was this burglar who wanted to rob a safe in a certain office in a hotel, and he's trying to figure out how to get into this room without just going straight through the door where he'll be seen. And he realizes there's actually a hotel room next to the office, so he just rents out that room. He gets a drywall saw. He goes into the room's closet and cuts a hole through the wall into the office. And from there, he just robs the safe and goes back through the closet and walks away. Fuck, that's good. That's a good way to do it. That's what the um, Special Air Service
4: did at the Iranian embassy siege. They basically built their command center in the embassy next to the Iranian embassy to uh, install all the listening devices through the wall and stuff and sneak around on the roof and shit.
0: Yeah, so when I think of thinking like criminals, something that comes to me is... It doesn't have to be a perfectly stealthy solution. It can just be really fast and ugly and dirty, but it only needs to work for the five minutes where you're going in and out.
3: Yeah, exactly. Think about what the consequences are. Assuming you're not caught, you know, it's not like you're an actual police officer or you might be, but you don't care for, you're not trying to pin these cultists for murder charge. You're trying to stop Yogg's of Sothoth from showing up. So you don't really care about constitutional rights or a warrant. Just smash the door down. Oh, I got a locked door? All right, I'll blast it with a shotgun and and move into the room. Now I got five minutes before the cops show up. What do I find, you know?
0: Yeah, and that's even in old Delta Green scenarios where sometimes you'll get uh, faked credentials from the FBI or some other agency where you're told these won't hold up under sustained inspection. But then while they're being inspected, that's another five minutes for you to just get your ass in gear and go after the threat.
3: It kind of makes you think that the most important skill a criminal can have is persuade, Uh, you know, the the fast talk skill. That's how you can stall or or prove to the guy that you're actually supposed to be there or come up with a convincing cover story. You know what I mean? Like That's almost the most important skill you can take as a criminal.
0: Yeah, for sure. Just keep drawing out that five minutes until you find a something else that will draw out another five minutes.
3: How does this help the average total green player? What can they, aside from potentially watching a bunch of criminal movies or reading the, that book you recommended, what, what, what's a good takeaway for a player who wants to be more, and not more criminal, but more agile and on his feet or more versatile, you know,
0: for me, it's know when you can afford to be sneaky and know when you have to move fast.
3: I was thinking, there's uh, a friend of mine told me this and it's stuck with me for a long time. Uh, and it's true. Um, uh, there's a point in, in any fight when you know a fight has started and it's usually well before the first gunshot is fired or the first punch is thrown. So if you reach, so I think a good criminal mind, if you recognize that you're in a fight, then, then talking is out the window. That's when you need to shoot first and end the fight before it can start.
4: I'm glad that you, um, Choose to say that that's a good thing when I'm not the one doing it. I think I'm being unfairly discriminated when, <laughs> against it because apparently when I do it, it's wrong. But when I mean, a criminal character see, does it, that's good.
3: You seem real defensive.
4: Oh well, yeah, I'm defending myself. That's what being defensive means. It's mean, shooting it was, first.
3: I don't think it was an attack against you.
4: Uh, you say that, and yet I'm taking your advice and firing before the threat has a chance to attack me.
2: Melon, is it a crime if you're never caught?
4: Um. I wouldn't know anything about either of those
2: questions. Yes, <laughs> it's still a crime. I guess I would say my takeaway for players here is don't get tunnel vision. Don't focus on a single avenue and uh, to the exclusion of all else. If you're stuck, stop and ask yourself, what obvious avenue am I overlooking? Yeah,
3: think about all... I'm really to movies again. Think about all the great heist movies. They would suck if they just heisted the diamond and walked out of the casino. Think about all the times when the plan they were working on had a roadblock and they had to adjust and shift, and how good it worked out in the end. So just be ready to make that shift.
4: I would say that to handlers. I would say, um, think about how, how shitty the heist movie would be if the first die roll that went wrong, the characters immediately got spotted and the police were called. Think about ways. This is something that, um, Kevin, we like to criticize the Star Wars RPG on this show, but one of the things I really liked about it was how it was about changing your approach when the one that you're using failed, because there wasn't such extreme consequences for doing something wrong that you immediately lost the game and couldn't continue.
3: Yeah, very yes, but no, but. What about not leaving evidence at a crime scene? Like, you you just gunned down 10 cultists in their hideout. Uh, and you don't really want the real police to show up and find 10 bodies with 25 arms amongst them. So, like, what, how do you deal with that?
2: Well, I know how I would deal with
3: that. <laughs> Take your drywall saw. Very versatile.
2: <laughs> now, how I would deal with that is I wouldn't care about the police showing up, because when they show up, it's a drug bust that went wrong. See, they've all got guns. Just bring
3: a lot of ham sandwiches? You just,
2: just, yeah, just sprinkle some cocaine on them.
3: But let's pretend for a moment that you actually don't, for some reason, maybe the cultist bodies are infohazards or something, and you don't want to... Covering it up is part of your job to create a prosaic explanation for the program. So, how do you do it?
2: Well, depending on how many cultists there are, you might need a pickup truck. Or a really big blender. Or a really big blender.
0: I think in that situation, you also need to know, like, what is the response time of the police in that area? And are you reasonably expecting that they'll be showing up soon? Like, did anyone get a message out or could anyone have heard you gunning these people down? Because I think one strategy for that is like, while you're trying to figure out the cover up, somebody should be creating an emergency on the other side of town and drawing eyes and police attention over there.
3: Something else you can do is, uh, you know, most cops at the end of the day, uh, and hopefully people will forgive the generalization, don't care about stopping a specific criminal. They just want to stop the criminals so maybe you can just give them a bigger fish so if you've if you've taken you know you have your pile of dead cultists and you can lead them back to uh you know a a, a bigger a bigger fish i don't really have anywhere to go with this one i mean, i started it but i wrote no way to finish it so i'm just oh, gonna like stop use
2: a bunch of dead cultists to somehow frame the local mafia boss yeah maybe that's pretty good <laughs>
3: And then the cops will probably look the other way in terms of, you know, when we found you, you had some illegal firearms on you. Like, yeah, but we're going to hand you this mafia, Don. So let's just, just forget about the legal guns officer, you know? it will be fine as long as they're not the ATF. So I guess the takeaway there is to remember the wise words of a character in one of the greatest Star Wars movies, there's always a bigger fish. How different is thinking like a criminal from thinking like a cop or like a federal law enforcement officer?
4: Um. Uh- by rules as written, not at all, because both of those classes have law, forensics, and criminology. What's a
2: class, Melon?
4: It is the way that true patricians refer to the professions in the agent's handbook.
2: To answer the question, I think Kevin was getting at, uh, I don't know. That there's I, much I did. difference at all.
4: That's what I said. I said that they all have the same. They have. They have actually the same You'd skills. You preface by it by rules saying
2: as rules as written. written, and then it said based on these skills. And I was like, well, more generally.
3: Yeah, i was trying to speak more generally, but. It is true that they share very similar uh, mechanics.
4: game's not just about mechanics. It's a game.
3: it's mostly about yeah, law enforcement officers. I don't think I've ever seen a mechanic.
4: Well, um, if you take 40% in craft mechanic on the criminal... Right, then... Now he's a mechanic. Yeah. Now... now we can talk about the mechanics
2: of crime. Is there a mechanic for that? There, there is now. But yeah, no, uh, I don't think there's that much difference at all, really.
4: Do, do we want to do like examples of interesting things that you can do things that we've done is that like a more concrete way of, of framing it
2: might be yeah that might give give people some some ideas if, will,
4: will i know that you fucking love to make like a character who's a con artist yes
2: that's a, that's a fun thing that i do a lot and that's just entirely social engineering like you can get a lot you can get away with a lot of shit by doing that it's also a useful chassis i guess for a bunch of other criminally skills because like a grifter's got to be able to not just like fast talk and persuade and charm people but you know kind of had like Sleight of hand, useful, useful skill to have. Uh, disguise, being able to blend in, or sometimes it's just showing up with a clipboard and and have and a really stern demeanor. You know, you you stand outside with a clipboard until the security guy comes you know, to ask what the hell you're doing. You look at your watch and go, mm, fifteen minutes. Not up to a good start.
3: <laughs> exactly. I had a I had a Dungeons and Dragons game a long, long time ago where there's a pretty interesting con you can run on somebody where you. Like you, you, give them a you give him a ten, and then they get you back you change. And you're like, oh crap, can I get like two fives? And oh, you basically you basically changing, just yeah. keep yeah, you keep grifting them back and forth. No, uh, sorry, uh, actually, you know, give me some quarters, and you basically come out of it ahead because you they can't keep up with the math. And he did that like to me, and as I was trying to keep track, eventually I was just like, he's like, do you need me to roll for that? And I was like, no, just tell me how much money I owe you. Like, <laughs>
2: you, you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> it's good. There's a show that I like called Hustle, and it's just the entire show is just stuff like that. It's it's really good.
3: I guess another piece of kind of untethered advice is if you're a criminal, like m- give yourself some fun criminal bonds, and then lean on them for stuff because it's pretty likely that if you're a criminal and one of your bonds is your longtime fence, that when your party needs some illegal firearms, he's the guy to go to, and you've already got the connection. So you don't need to, like, go through the whole, like, finding a shady dealer and making cash. casual, like, no, we'll just use Billy. So Billy the Fence is a lot better than, you know, an ex-wife.
2: So how much of this advice we're giving is applicable to any profession? Because it's not just about, like, how to play a criminal, it's how to think like a
3: criminal. I think it's all pretty applicable.
2: Do you guys see um, agents, I guess, getting kind of hung up on, well, that's not due process in the course of investigation?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's always fun. You just have to remind them that uh, you're... You're not there for due process. Yeah, don't you, agree you don't need to make a case process. out of this.
2: There's there's no law on the books for blabbing cultists. There's there's no statute of limitations on that.
0: We might have talked about this in previous episodes, but in a game I ran and in a game I was playing in, uh, I've seen people. Somebody with a halfway decent law skill who is explicitly not a lawyer would dress themselves up as a public defender and present themselves as the attorney for someone the players had captured and were trying to interrogate. And so they ended up kind of stealth interrogating this person by tricking them into thinking the player character was their lawyer.
3: Yeah, because think about it. You're you're being interrogated and your lawyer shows up. Like, How are you even going to vet that person? You, you just have no way to do it.
0: Yeah. Oh, hi, I'm your public
3: defender. Prove it. Uh, never mind. I'll go find the next person who needs my <laughs> yeah. help.
0: I'll oh, no, know right. come back. When you're doing that, like, very clearly you've decided this person is never going to see a trial. We just need to get the information from them as fast as we can.
3: Just tell the local PD, sorry, play with all the feds. Uh, And and again, in the game I played in pretty recently, uh, 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 the the onus for the game, I'll make this brief, was that a character's head exploded, uh, or an NPC's head exploded. So everyone else in the vehicle at the time was clearly, they were innocent of the crime. But I interrogated one, and I threatened him so hard that in order to save his friends, he was like, I'll admit to anything you want me to admit. So he definitely went, and I was like, in Texas, they'll, they'll kill you. Like, you're going to have the death penalty. So he definitely like got killed, and at the end, the handler was like, how do you feel about that? How does your character feel? And I was like, look, he wasn't guilty of murder, but he's guilty of something, so I don't feel that bad.
4: Yeah, it's okay when Kevin does it, but when bread says it, suddenly it's a crime.
3: Yes. Actually, not how crimes work.
4: I'm trying to think what is the unifying theme of our um, discussion today.
3: Don't get stopped by the locked door.
4: Yeah.
2: I guess don't be afraid to try the obvious solution.
3: Yeah, don't be afraid to improvise and adapt and overcome.
2: But, I mean, again, that's advice
3: I that would give any Delta Green person, not just a criminal. The real criminals were the ones you made along the way.
2: Yes. That, yeah, that's good. That's good. We'll end on that. That's all we have for you this week. In the description of this episode, you'll find a link to the Night at the Opera Discord server, and to our social media pages, including our Twitter feed, at 9mmretirement. Reach out, and let us know what you thought of this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll be in touch.